Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to another edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, for those of you coming across our broadcast for the very first time. Daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time, and that's certainly where you come in. Your questions that uh, you connect uh, us with are a vital part of directing our journey through God's Word. Uh, we don't want to uh, try to sit down and figure out what we think you need to hear about the Word of God. Uh, we'd rather have it be something that comes from your heart. And what better way to do that than uh, connect us up with any question you have about the Bible, how to apply the Bible to the current situations you find within your life, how to uh, make a defense for the hope that's within you with meekness and reverence as we're enjoined to do. That's what A Reason for Hope is all about. If you've been asked some tough questions about the Bible or have always wanted to ask maybe a tough question or two about the Scripture, uh, bring it on. Uh, the only standard for the questions we answer on the broadcast, pretty simple. Just make sure that it's a sincere question. If you're looking for an answer straight from the Scripture, we'll be happy to do our best to provide it. Uh, you like to talk about the events of the day, and boy, aren't there a lot of them swirling around us these days from a biblical point of view. Bring them on. Uh, if you like to talk about the events of tomorrow, biblical prophecy, where do we stand in relation to the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? This is what we do each and every day. But it's your questions that uh, guide and direct the conversation. So, uh, Sean, how can people get their questions to us? Well, you can email us your questions at questionsforhope at gmail.com. The spelling of that will be put at the bottom of the screen on our website where we are live streaming. That is calvarychristianfellowship.com, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab at the purple bar at the top of the screen, and you'll be sent to our streaming page, which of course is titled ccftucson.online.church. If you're sent somewhere else, then you either click the wrong thing or notify us because something went wrong. <laughs> but that will have the spelling of the email address at the bottom of the screen and as well a countdown clock or a live screaming, screaming, streaming of the broadcast as it unfolds five days a week from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time in the U.S. or Pacific if you're not on Daylight Savings. We're looking forward to receiving your questions there, but say you've gotten used to social media, YouTube is also available at A Reason for Hope. And Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. So if you want to join us there, give us a like or subscribe. But if you are, for whatever reason, and again, they vary, aren't notified when we're going live and we don't give you prior notification on those platforms, you can still join us on our website, which is where we encourage you to go. They can't censor us on our own platform. So with all that being said, and just to repeat the point, if you have sincere Bible questions, you can send them to us by email, questions for hope at gmail.com. You can send them to us in our chat room in our streaming website, which of course is the same as our church website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, 
or on YouTube, which is A Reason for Hope, or on Facebook, which is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. However, if you're joining us on Reach Radio or one of our radio affiliates, note the email address will be the primary way we want to connect with you. If you're listening to us as you're driving, note that you are taped delayed. So if you send us questions on your way home, then the next broadcast that you listen to will be the one we're addressing your questions on. It's a system that is certainly improvised, but nonetheless we think is efficient. We uh, look forward to your participation in it as well. And speaking of hoping for participation, we want to start every broadcast with a word of prayer when there are the hopes that God speaks more than we do. Yeah. So why don't we take some time to do that, and we'll get to the questions that you are sending along to us. Absolutely. Lord, thank you so much that we can bring this broadcast before you. It's your broadcast, Lord, and we pray that you would use it uh, according to your will, according to your plan. We pray that your powerful word would go forth and uh, convict people, uh, Lord, of sin, righteousness, and judgment. If they're on the outside looking in at a relationship with you, I pray that you would uh, deepen the understanding of your people. Edify, exhort them, comfort them. As your word goes forth, uh, we pray with clarity, with focus being shared in the balance of grace and truth that you desire your people uh, to receive it. Uh, thank you, Lord, that your word is a lamp unto our feet uh, and a light into our path. We thank you as well that it is the bread of life that can satisfy us. Lord, bless us encourage us. We look forward to you doing great and mighty things as your word goes forth. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. All right, so we'll be keeping an eye on our social media platforms as your questions come in, but we also have some have been printed out in advance, so we'll start with that and see where our thoughts and our audience ultimately takes us from there. This is a question from Justin, who wants to know about the term apologist, as well as what it means to be a reformist. Obviously, denominations, terms of issues in Christianity, uh, make a lot of people concerned whenever they hear titles apart from just the plain Christian title. But when it comes to those who are apologists, and this is one that I'm sure is going to be close to our hearts here yeah. in a minute, but also for those who are reformed and also those who are by contrast, a part of the faith movement, and if we have time also to uh, give our two cents worth regarding the message translation, if that has anything to do with what we're discussing. So, apologist, defaulting to the one who knows a bit of Greek, it's from a word in that neck of the woods, and, yeah. and yeah. it means to give an answer, right? Yeah, it, it really uh, comes uh, directly to us from First Peter chapter 3. And verse 15, where it says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, and when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Well, here we see that very word, uh, apologia, uh, used in the, this particular passage. It is translated reason, and uh, with good reason, as a matter of fact. The word apologia literally means from logic or from reason. And so when we share uh, the good news of Jesus Christ, when people get involved with what we would call an apologetics ministry, what we're really trying to do, I guess to make it as simple as possible, is to show that the message of Scripture makes sense. Uh, to use uh, the, uh, the words of Francis Schaeffer, the famous uh, Christian philosopher, 
that Christianity is like a key to reality that fits exactly right. And we come about that uh, conclusion from a number of different uh, places. Some people will say, well, how can you say the Christian life uh, and the Christian message makes sense? Doesn't the Bible hopelessly contradict itself? And so part of apologetics is showing people that uh, the famous charge that the Bible contradicts itself doesn't stand up under examination. We do that uh, alleged contradiction by alleged contradiction. Others will say that the Christian worldview uh, doesn't make sense. You know, the, the questions that come up about uh, how can you believe that God could uh, make the entire universe in six days? Well, the easy answer to that is if God is able by his great power to create an entire universe, uh, my only question is why did it take him six? Why didn't he just do it instantaneously? But the Bible tells us that in order for uh, God's creative work to make sense to us as people, he accommodated it uh, in such a way that we would be able to understand it. Uh, so that, that's another example of that. Uh, another example of that is to uh, answer philosophical uh, objections to the Christian faith. Like, for instance, how can miracles be possible? Well, once again, if we are dealing with a God who was the one who set all natural laws in place, it would only stand to reason that God could supersede those laws as his desire and will uh, would require. So, you know, once again, when we get involved with uh, apologetics, these are the issues that we explore. And really, uh, when the non-believer asks us tough questions about our faith and uh, uh, you know, brings us to a place where we do have to, from reason, show that the Christian message is a reasonable faith. God is a reasonable God. They do us a huge service because as they do that, they put us in a place where uh, our own uh, confidence in the Word of God leaps and uh, grows by leaps and bounds. One of the greatest uh, ways to uh, increase your confidence in God's Word is to be asked a real stumper question by a non-believer that forces you to dig and forces you to find your own answer for that, not being spoon-fed or just copying your answers out of the back, back of a book because somebody else came to those conclusions. But uh, when we really engage and we are able to give a reason for the hope that is within us, uh, we are the greatest uh, recipients of blessing in that whole equation because uh, we'll own that truth at that point. Anything you'd add to that? No, just make sure that in the plainest terms, it means that you don't shy away from questions. You're willing to give answers and good ones. That's what it means to be an apologist, and that's not something for the spiritual elite. It's not even necessarily for the higher educated form of the spiritually elite. It's required for everyone to know what they believe to be able to explain it, not just to others, but first to themselves. If you can do that, then you're an apologist. Right. Uh, Reformed is not like an apologist in that it doesn't fit every neck of the Christian woods, but to reform or to go back to the roots, some would note radical, is usually in reference to those who were part of the Reformation and the various denominations that formed when honest questions weren't being answered by the apologists who were living at that time. That, of course, is in reference to most predominantly Martin Luther, John Calvin, and many others. But when we're talking about people in the broadest sense possible, those who are part of Reformed theology. They are those who would answer certain difficult questions about the Christian faith with a heavy, heavy emphasis upon God's sovereignty, right. not usually at the expense of, but sometimes including the dismissal of free will. So if you're talking to someone who calls themselves a Calvinist or a Reformed
turned theologian, a lot of very prominent internet and YouTube apologists are from this stripe and ilk. Or, or even pastors like John MacArthur or John Piper and others. Yeah. yeah, that would be what is referred to as Reformed theology, going back to the Reformers who asked questions that couldn't be answered by the Roman Catholic Church without either discarding Scripture or adding to it, which usually isn't what you do if you have the truth on your side, and that, of course, was the reason why they split off, why the universal church was ultimately fragmented into these various groups. Now, obviously, not everyone in the Reformation subscribed to, as we call it today, or even then, Calvinism, but that is generally what the terms used to mean. Uh, in a brief also, side note, you asked a question about the message translation. It is not recommended, <laughs> even slightly, but the point of emphasis that I think can give you all uh, more to work with than just avoid that translation is because generally when people are reading versions of the Bible, they're not reading one Bible that's you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the other one that's Tom, Bill, Dick, and Harry. There's all going to, they're all going to contain the Word of God as it's been translated through the ages. The question is, how did they translate it? The two most prominent ways are, of course, word for word, trying to get back to what the original translation said as closely as our language would accommodate in the modern tongue. Thus, you have updates, not because of new information, but new language development. Yeah. Yeah. The second is paraphrase, or thought-for-thought uh, -thought translations, where it's it's not actually a translation, but more the translator reflecting on these passages and trying to communicate it in a clearer way to them personally, which at face value doesn't sound all that bad, but when it comes to personal Bible study, you really have to be careful you're accurately communicating these things, yeah. and if it's not supported by the language, then that's a burden no human being should want to bear. And the message um, even goes beyond that. Yes. Um, that's, that's the real problem with it. It was written by a guy named Eugene Peterson, uh, and uh, he uh, did that this in an attempt to make the Bible more accessible uh, to his flock, which was a, a noble uh, endeavor. Uh, the, the problem, though, is uh, when uh, we talk even about the message being a paraphrase, uh, it's really more of a rendering of what Eugene Peterson would want the Bible to say. You know, for instance, uh, one common complaint from many who read the message or hear it read aloud is, man, I don't recognize it as uh, the Bible. Well, there's a reason for that. And Christianity Today, uh, in an interview uh, that uh, they, they gave with Peterson, uh, he described the beginning of the creative process that uh, produced the message. He said, quote, I just kind of let it go and became playful. And that's when the Sermon on the Mount started. I remember I was down in my basement study, and I did the Beatitudes in about 10 minutes. And all of a sudden, I realized this could work. Well, um, apart from thinking that someone could do a new translation of uh, the, the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount in 10 minutes, um, you know, I don't think that playfulness is probably the best, uh, well, GPS heading to have if you're going to be doing the very serious work of Bible translation. You wouldn't want someone to enter into, say, uh, working on uh, potentially explosive nuclear materials with a spirit of playfulness. You would want them to be very serious about what they were doing. So when I, I see this sort of thing, well, you know, one 
wonders whether playfulness is the best demeanor to have uh, when we are trying to rightly divide the word of truth, as 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 says. Uh, we should have awe and reverence for the fact that this isn't man's word about God that we can play around with. This is God's word to man. And, and so having that sense of awe, that sense of respect for what we are dealing with uh, in uh, the, the Bible is, is really appropriate there. And for that reason, I just don't recommend the message. If you want a thought-for-thought thought translation, I would say the New Living Translation is probably uh, leaps and bounds uh, better than the message. And I don't really recommend the New Living Translation in that uh, if our goal is to try to get to what the original intent of the author said, a word-for-word -word translation and a good, easily accessible word-for-word -word translation is probably where we ought to go, and that's really why we steer people more towards um, either the ESV or uh, especially the New King James Version. really like the New King James Version because it's a very accurate word-for-word uh, -word translation, and uh, it is very easy to follow along with for a modern reader. So I, I think that's two for two right there. All right. Let us know if that helps you out, Justin. Here's a question from Nina on our website who wants to know uh, what's in mind when it talks about foolish questions and genealogies in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 23. For those of you who aren't familiar with the categorization of some of the letters in the New Testament, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are all what are called the pastoral epistles. Right. So it's speaking to someone who's basically groomed may be an awkward word in our day and age, but being prepared, being educated for the role of a pastorship or being a shepherd of a particular church. And Timothy and Titus both were students of the Apostle Paul, and they were being instructed basically how to function in the positions they were being called to in leadership. And interestingly enough, not just in 2 Timothy, Nina, but every pastoral epistle, Paul makes this point, and all for the same reason. Let's read them all and note the common features. This is regarding uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, Greece, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things in which they affirm. So literally the first topic after high to Timothy yeah. was discussing yeah. the fact that you need to teach what is actually in the Word, to know what you're talking right. about, to not be like these people who get off on endless rabbit trails about anything and everything apart from the truth, anything right. that's going to build you up in godly edification. Now going to your passage, Nina, this is 2 Timothy 2 and verse, let's start in verse 20. In a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone will cleanse himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. What's that? Verse 22, flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So notice, just like in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the conscience is what's being kept in mind here. And he says in verse 23, but avoid 
foolish and ignorant disputes. Notice the lack of knowledge is another common feature between these exhortations. Knowing that they, what? Generate strife. Now, strife is one of those funny old English words. We usually think of it as conflict in a general sense, but it's actually more apt to the internet age than any other time in history, isn't right. it? Right, yeah. What, what does that word strife mean? Well, it uh, carries the idea of conflicts and, uh, you know, assaulting someone's character, actually. So specifically in regards to the verbally tearing someone down. Right. If that's the fruit of these conversations, it's not building them up. It's the opposite. Right. So notice, again, the intention, which is why he then makes a point of contrast in verse 24. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So you got two kinds of people in both letters to Timothy. You have those who are speaking and teaching about the things they actually know something about, and those who don't. Yes. Those who are seeking to build people up in the faith, and those who are seeking to tear people down, which is then what brings us to the book of Titus. And Titus also making a similar point, because again, it is Paul speaking to his student for the same reason as he was speaking to Timothy, says this in verse 8 of chapter 3. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who believe in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and, note this, profitable to men. Right. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, that's family histories, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, that's correction, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. And you have that policy, right? Yeah. Uh, in, in your interaction on the internet, three strikes and you're out. You know, you get a first and second admonition, but if all you're there to do is to stir up trouble or put people down or, or uh, you know, rage and hurl insults, three strikes, you're done. Yeah, you're not going to be taken seriously because you're just wasting time, and that's the whole point. Uh, in, especially in this day and age, the virtue of niceness at the cost of truth is one that's being popularized, but speaking On as, a number of levels, yeah. Yeah, speaking as and among fellow pastors, let's just clarify something to you all here. Our job isn't to be nice. It's to be polite, it's to be respectful, but it's not to be nice. Liked. Yes, our goal isn't to appease evil or irrational people, because usually those are the ones who demand it the most. If we're talking about things, and you can say it in a sense is why when we started the broadcast, we made a clarification, sincere Bible questions. Right. It's not because we don't like talking to you. It's because we've set aside this time and have prepared for this time in order to equip you for your relationship with God. If the sort of questions that get asked aren't that, then there is a time and place for it, but it's not here. If in the same way, you're gathering together as the body of Christ, and we want to teach each other about, you know, proper cooking techniques or how to be more moral contributors to society, you know, not poisoning food and maybe loving your neighbors yourself may come up every now and again, but that's not the purpose for which we're studying the Word of God. We're studying the Word of God because we want to be built up in the knowledge of our Lord. 
If that is not the goal of your asking of the question, it is our job to recognize that and get back on topic. If on the other hand, we're just going into endless hypotheticals or, well, what if uh, in this book it's instead said this? Well, it doesn't say that, so let's get back on topic. Obviously, we don't know the hearts and intents of the mind. We aren't God. Yeah. We can judge by the nature of the question that this isn't going to lead anywhere profitable. And what's the greatest profit? Fellowship with God and what he said, not what you think he ought to have said. Not to thinking that you would give an improvement to what God has to say. And the whole point being made in every single letter is, and this is Paul's continual exhortation even to us today, preach the word. As our uh, mentor and beloved glorified brother in the faith, Romaine, once observed, if you got something better than the Bible to teach, you can better teach it to yep. then stick to the Bible. Exactly. That's our job. And if people want to get into, well, what about this scholar and his comments and the nuance of the Hebrew? It's like, what is that in English? If, on the other hand, you'd say, no, I'm, I'm genuinely interested here, and this is the reason why I'm asking, and it directly correlates to their relationship with God, we can be the judge of that. We can entertain that, or we can correct them and say, look, this isn't really a good use of time or attention. Why don't we get back to John three sixteen before we go to John chapter 40, right. which, by the way, isn't in there. Right. So make sure that that is the point being made. Yeah. You know, that's the emphasis on all three of those passages, the intent of the questioner and the goal of the question. If it's not in the Bible, that's not our job. Yeah, and, and one other thing I'd add to that, uh, the reason that genealogies are cited as uh, this bone of contention was at that time in the history of the Church, there was this teaching that was rising called Gnosticism. Uh, it comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge, but the Gnostics believed in hidden secret knowledge that was only available to a spiritual elite that had gone through various rituals or joined their particular camp. One of the things the Gnostics really went to town on were the genealogies we find in Scripture. Some of them would say, well, uh, this particular name, uh, you know, if you, uh, you know, read it in the original, it means this, and then it follows this other uh, name that's four letters, and, and they would construct doctrine based upon that. Others would say that these are really the names of various angels and spiritual beings that you've got to get to know in order to know the true and living God. And uh, these are things that obviously uh, fly in the face of the obvious, plain truth of Scripture, that anyone who receives Jesus Christ as their personal Savior has their sins forgiven and is adopted into the family of God. First uh, John chapter 1 said that our fellowship is with the Father. It literally means face-to-face -face with the Father. You don't have to go through all these angelic intermediaries. So that was a problem with the genealogies. And even to this day, you're going to run into people that are going to uh, you know, look at genealogies or look at different things in the Scripture and uh, you know, say, I found something in the Bible that nobody's ever found before. Uh, maybe you remember the big fad on the Bible codes that was, uh, was uh, running rampant through the church a few years back. And what they'd say is if you run a computer program on the Bible, you're, you know, you can find specific prophecies there. It was really interesting how some of those prophecies had to do uh, with God's favor towards those who were promoting this particular doctrine. So, you know, the, the big question is uh, when we read a genealogy, 
Is it uh, a hidden meaning that we're looking for? Is it a list of, of spiritual entities that we have to kiss up to in order to get an introduction to God? Is it uh, something that can only be understood in the computer age? No, no, and no. Uh, you know, really what it comes down to is Proverbs chapter 8 and uh, in verse 9, uh, where we read, All the words of my mouth are with righteousness. Nothing crooked or perverse is in them. They are all plain to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. If the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense in Scripture, lest you what? Believe in nonsense. Yeah, and so the, you know, these various uh, you know, things, uh, again, I, I would say uh, the harbinger fits into that category because it's reading into a passage of Isaiah, something that you would never find reading back into the events of, say, 9-11 into a passage in Isaiah uh, any other way. So you know, we really have to be careful about these things and the disputes that can come up from all of this. Uh, just uh, read the Scripture, read it plainly, uh, and uh, read with a heart uh, where you want to understand the meaning and you want to apply the meaning, and I think you're going to be all right. All right, and uh, speaking of nonsense, we got a question about the book of Enoch from Sue, who uh, has been hearing it's a lost book. Is it not in the Bible for a reason? Yeah, Sue, it's a great question. The book of Enoch is actually five Which ones? Yeah, 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 five books of Enoch that were written as essentially a fictional, and I use that word intentionally and purposefully, fictional narratives meant to record and document the adventures of this individual who was mentioned in the book of Genesis chapter three or four, four excuse me, yeah. who was the seventh generation removed from Adam. Verses and was 14 of, through 15, yeah. Yeah, he was one one of the righteous generations, it says that he walked with God and was not, for God took him. That's all that we're told about Enoch, apart from a passing mention made in the book of Jude, which we'll get into in a second. But what's interesting about... Actually, uh, that's a correction. It's in Genesis chapter 5. Noted. Yeah. But uh, Genesis, the point being made is this. This righteous individual who lived before the time of the flood, now note that because that's important, was named as such and had an interesting relationship with God, so much so to the point that um, some have done the math and noting about a small handful of years, I'm not going to say definitively because I don't remember, but it is a small series of years before the flood took place, God intervened physically and took him. There's a humorous story that's made where God and Enoch were walking together and he said, hey, you're closer to my house house than yours. Why don't you just come home with me? That's right. That's, that's essentially the object of it. There are some who make him an argument as a foreshadowing or precursor to the rapture. I don't necessarily dismiss it, but I don't buy it or argue with it either. Yeah. That's all that we know as far as Scripture is concerned. But people having the capacity to write and be creative, sometimes both, but not always, uh, they made stories of Enoch and his adventures with these interesting spiritual entities. The books of 1st through 5th Enoch, uh, the 1st and 2nd in particular, go into a lot of lurid detail about the inner workings of the spiritual realm, the nature of the seven archangels and their names, the nine lords of hell and all these other interesting things, the roles that demons play in nature and how this was just basically in front of everyone without any filter before the time of the flood, and that kind of caught massed over time. 
there's uh, a lot of interesting things to be read in that, but you need to first note that it's fiction. Why? Because, as we understand, first of all, the author has a right to tell you whether or not this is true. And if you were to, say, for instance, in a modern equivalent, approach George Lucas and say, just how far away is the Star Wars galaxy? I would hope that he would say, it doesn't exist, I made it up. And I can say that definitively because it came from in here. Right. But if, on the other hand, uh, he were to, say, start a cult of Lucasism, which, let's be honest, isn't probably too far from the truth. People buy anything. This would be the kind of approach that a lot of people have taken, especially in the modern day, in using the Book of Enoch as this exalted spiritual insight, as if the angels and demons mentioned within it actually are who they are. Here's the reality. When it comes to what books belong in our Bible and which don't, Let's first take the obvious criteria, and then let's go to the less obvious criteria in the dating of Enoch, and we'll work back from there. First of all, uh, what gave the authors of first through fifth Enoch, and there were many, uh, the right to say whether or not this is Scripture or not? Well, because first of all, Scripture, and to claim that you were writing as such, revelation from God, right. bore with it a very serious penalty if you made any sort of error or deviation in doctrine, which Enoch makes plenty. Stoning. Yeah, yeah they'd kill you with rocks. Yeah. And so <laughs> you'd be taking your life into your hands if they were examined under that criteria. And again, what gives the Jews the right to measure us by that criteria? Well, first of all, not just their association with Moses, the first person to accurately reveal things from God in writing, but we read in the book of Romans chapter 3 that that was something given to them uniquely as an honor by God. This is in verse uh, 1 of Romans chapter 3. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision, the mark of a Jewish priesthood that they were all to model as a nation? Much in every way. Chiefly, so here's on the top, because to them were committed the oracles of God. Now we know the word oracle is more of a Greek term, but like the oracle of Delphi claimed to speak for the gods by huffing volcanic ash, the Jews were committed as the oracles of God. Why? Through Scripture, that what they were given is considered revelation. We call this the Old Testament. Right. And no Jewish source... <laughs> ever considered, not just the books of Enoch, but also other uh, pseudopigraphal or apocryphal, we'll get to what that means in a minute, uh, writings as a part of their scripture. They recorded them because they were interesting historical writings, but much like First and Second Maccabees, those were legitimate history, but were they biblical history? The authors said no. Why? Because they would have known <laughs> if they were actually told and inspired by God to deliver these things. They made historical errors, like for instance in First Maccabees, they referred to Nebuchadnezzar as the king of Assyria. He was not the king of Assyria he conquered Assyria, he was the king of Babylon. Right. Now note, it's fine if you make little historical blunders, but if you claim this is Scripture, John Macca Judas Maccabeus rather, would have gotten him and his kids killed for documenting that and lying in the name of God in order to get it taken more seriously than it was. It's nice history, but it's not Scripture. They knew the difference. The books of Tobit, which document more in regards to the Assyrian captivity, that's the northern tribes of Israel, and his adventures with one of the archangels of healing, or I believe it was Raphael. Uh, interesting little stories and uh, go, makes a few notes about the Jewish perspective about spiritual things at that time. And don't fall asleep with your eyes open or a bird will uh, relieve itself in your eyes and you'll go blind. Yeah, that's yeah. in there. Yeah. There's also yeah. the uh, 
yeah, odd so. mentioning of people getting forgiven of their sins by committing mass murder, but that that's yeah. neither here nor there. The point being made is this. There's a lot of writings that were made, wranglings of Solomon and going into Solomon uh, commissioning demonic entities to gather the water and mortar necessary for building the temple. Again, all interesting stuff, but it's not biblical, it's right. not historical. And why do I say that? Not just because it's weird, and not just because weirdos, which I hesitate to mention by name, but I'll just caution you against people who would put this forward as their source material. It's because the writers of these books lived, not decades, centuries, and in the case of Enoch, millennia, <laughs> some yeah. would argue, yeah. after the fact. One of the criteria of being able to write biblical revelation was if you were reporting something, it's because it was either given to you by God, like Moses in the book of Genesis, or you were an eyewitness to it themselves, and God specifically drew your attention to these things. The books of Enoch were written 200 years before the time of Christ. Enoch himself there's estimates that are made. We're talking five to 6,000 years before the time of Christ, or 5,800 years before the time his books were written. None of this information is firsthand. None of this information is based off of any authoritative oral tradition, and none of this information was claimed to be revelation from God right. by the authors themselves. So if they had claimed divine inspiration, we'd have it, just like with, say, for example, the false gospels, the Gnostic gospels, written by Jesus. Jesus, several centuries after the deaths of those who wrote them, they would claim, oh, this is the gospel according to Thomas. Well, that's all well and good, but the earliest copy we have of the gospel of Thomas is about a hundred years after we have it on good authority, he was killed by a spear and skinned alive in India. So either your title page is a lie, which tells me a lot about the pages that then come after it, or you're just lying, and we're going to treat you <laughs> accordingly. But here's the point. Why isn't it in our Bibles? A, because the authors said they didn't put it in our Bibles, and they have the right to do that. They knew the difference. B, if they had claimed they would have been killed with rocks, not just because the material in it's silly, but because it didn't come from the sort of things we'd expect and right. test Scripture to fall into the criteria of. The third most important detail is that, much like with the endless genealogies and disputes that lead nowhere, you read the books in substance and of themselves, they have nothing to do with God. <laughs> you need to make sure that that's what's being kept in full view. There's people who will go out of their way to literally build their entire scriptural worldview on the insights into the demonic and angelic when Jesus is kind of sitting over here waiting for his turn to get talked about. The whole purpose of scripture is what? Your fellowship with God and right. your fellowship with fellow men as a result of that. If it's not profitable for those things, then it's unprofitable and therefore useless. The first through fifth books of Enoch, as well as much of the Apocrypha, which means veiling to conceal something, as opposed to apocalypse or revelation to make clear, are not the sort of things that we are called to basically model our Christian life after. There are bad teachers, and even false teachers, who would say otherwise, but you need to do your homework and say, okay, well, they say these books belong in our Bible. Take the time to read them. We appreciate the fact that you asked us about them, Sue. We can give you a little bit of background into this and why it's good to come to different conclusions than they would lead you into. Right. But here's the point that's being made. Enoch does not belong in our Bibles. The authors thought so. 
the history behind them agrees, and of course the information inside of it substantively accomplishes nothing more than you would get from, say, a Marvel comic book. It's fanciful. It's got lots of fancy effects and, ooh, spooky stuff. Maybe some weird A lot of CGI, yeah. Yeah, but uh, the point being made is that it doesn't actually accomplish anything as far as information you would get from books that we actually do know something about. Now, here's where the counter-argument goes. I think I've ranted enough about this for (laughs) a few minutes. But they say, well, it does belong in our Bibles, because in the book of Jude, which is divinely inspired scripture, and we don't dismiss that as the case, there's a quotation from 1st Enoch, which in which he prophesies the return of the Lord. Yeah. Now, yeah. the information's it, it, accurate. Yeah, in the, the reference is uh, in, uh, in Jude, uh, it quotes from the book of Enoch. Which uh, chapter? In, yeah, it's only got one. <laughs> That's a trick question out there for you. Uh, verses 14 and 15 says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they've done in an ungodly way and all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Uh, Now, that is an accurate statement, but it does not mean that the book of Enoch belongs in the Bible. Why? Well, Jude's quote is not the only quote we have in the Bible from a non-biblical source. We have the Apostle Paul, for instance, on two separate occasions, in Acts chapter 17 and in Titus chapter 1 and verse 12, quoting from a Greek philosopher named Epimenides. Uh, In both of these cases, what he was saying was Epimenides' observation about uh, our relationship with God in Acts 17 and the character of the individuals in Crete were both accurate, but he wasn't saying, okay, let's uh, get the writings of Epimenides and put it in our Bible. Uh, You know, again, the same is true with Jude. Uh, What Jude is doing is he's quoting from this book, but he is in no way saying the entire book is inspired or even true. All it means is that that particular observation from that book is true. To say more than that is definitely saying something more than what we find in the scripture. So uh, we should treat the book of Enoch, I think, and other books like it in the same manner we do any other apocryphal writings. Some of what we find in the apocrypha is true and correct, but at the same time, a lot of it is false, and a lot of it is historically inaccurate. So if you read them as fan fiction, interesting stories, first and second Maccabees, maybe a a historical uh, reference to the time, Uh, where uh, the uh, Jewish people were under the control of the Greeks. Uh, That's good, but uh, that doesn't mean they're entirely accurate. We do see errors in terms of how long people lived and where they governed and so forth. Uh, And so they do not fall under the same standard as the rest of the Word of God. Okay, I'll throw one more related question out to you here, Sean. Why then do we accept the books of the Bible as being authentic then? If the Apocrypha doesn't pass the test of being a biblically inspired book, why do the 66 books we have in the Bible pass that test? Well, basically for the same reason the 39 of the Old Testament were recognized as such. They were tested 
and weren't put in the Apocrypha. That's why there's a difference. Okay, what was the test? <laughs> the test was, and this is handed down to us, mentioned several times in Deuteronomy, but the most straightforward is in chapter 18. Moses is the first man that God used to reveal his word in writing format would be the model going forward, and he did it through what? First of all, through publicly verifiable miracles, that if God's going to speak words, he'll back them up with deeds. Right. Every single book of the Bible, all of the individuals who are used in history to document this information rather than others, because no, we aren't given the total history of the Jewish people, just the ones that are relevant to his messianic work and his redemption of his people. But note that point. Drawing attention to this, the person had to verify themselves as a prophet, a spokesman, and that was verified through miracles, publicly verified miracles. This would include predictions of the future or interventions in nature, and that's also why you see in the Old Testament miracles kind of being infrequent and in clusters, because people who were given new information needed to be trusted according to that standard, right. or they wouldn't be trusted at all. Second, they would have to be consistent, that if a man speaks in the name of other gods, which you have not known, or in the name of God, but doing things he doesn't normally do, then you are to, as we mentioned before, hold him to capital offense. Right. That you, Very serious. Yeah. That you were under the, not just scrutiny, but accountability that would result in a physical bad day, yeah. <laughs> to make it, yeah. put it as lightly as possible. Publicly verified miracles, accuracy in the information that you gave, or you'd be killed with rocks, consistency in the doctrine that you put forward, or you'd be killed with rocks, and all of this was only then when you would be taken seriously as a spokesman of God. The 39 books of the Old Testament verified according to these standards, and when that capstone was reached after the book of Malachi, that is when Revelation ceased. Now, we believe in the New Testament Revelation because they also held themselves to the standards of Old Testament prophets, but also under the title of an apostle, someone who was sent out by the one whom the prophets spoke, all the way back to Moses, by the way. Now, how did Jesus confer this authority, and why do we take him seriously? Well, first of all, did Jesus perform any public miracles? Yes. Oh, I'd say a few. Yeah. Yes, not including, but limited to healing the sick, raising the dead, the lame walk, fulfilling prophecies in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and many others. Also in Moses, but note the most significant is his historically verified resurrection from the dead. After a very humiliating and verified death, by the way, he passed the first standard of a prophet. Second, was Jesus accurate in the information that he made? Well, we can go into specifics all day if you'd like got about maybe 15 minutes, but the most significant, I think, as far as not only his claims about the present, Sermon on the Mount, for instance, is still revered to this day as the most accurate summation of human psychology and moral behavior that anyone's ever put into, uh, put into writing. We can also talk about his claims about the future. This can dove on to miracles, but note he didn't make inaccurate statements. If he had, say, for instance, said, uh, when the disciples asked about the temple, oh, uh, look at these massive stones. And he says, yep, they sure are big. Looks like they'll be there forever. We dismiss Jesus as a false teacher. Why? Because he went on to say, you see these stones? Not one stone is going to remain upon another that won't be thrown down. That was accurate information. He was not only truthful in the past, but also in the future and the present. And the third 
much like within keeping with the Old Testament prophet standard, why we take him seriously? Did he give a consistent picture of God? Well, yes, he did continue to espouse this interesting doctrine of the Trinity. He did, in fact, espouse this very interesting view of God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who spoke through Moses, who spoke through the prophets, and who testified of himself. Now, there's people who disagree with that statement, but that doesn't mean that it's inaccurate. He is consistent in his portrayal of the Jewish God. Then finally, and most significantly, when he was not only giving this information, was it accurate, was it consistent? Did he verify it with miracles? Yes, and he also claimed not just to be the prophet which Moses spoke, but also the capstone of those who would speak on behalf of God, God himself. So if he was able to back up those words, then those who spoke in his name verifiably were also bearing that authority. That's why we listen to the writings of the apostles and their biographies as well, because they stand on the laurels of Jesus. That's also why all the false doctrines were meant to make this point, be trusted because they also performed miracles in not just the name of the God of Israel, but the name of Jesus is one and the same. So yeah. make that point. Yeah. That's why we listen to their writings, and that's why we acknowledge the 66 books that compose the Old and New Testaments, because they were tested according to the standard that every single Jewish scripture was from start to finish, and yes, that includes the Christian scriptures. Yeah, yeah. Well, some great questions out there, and, and that's really an important one to have under your belt, because sooner or later someone's going to ask the question. Speaking of uh, the uh, authentic scriptures, interesting question from Isaiah on uh, Calvary christianfellowship.com yeah he asked the question did the holy spirit use constantine to orchestrate our bible uh well uh the 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 fact of the matter is it it really almost isn't a laughing matter because since um things like the da vinci code and so on uh it's been considered pretty much one of those everyone knows sort of situations Uh, that people will say, oh, yeah, well, everybody knows that, uh, you know, Constantine, the Roman Empire, and the Council of Nicaea decided which books were in and which books were out of the Bible. The Ecumenical Uh, Council, the rudder also of which it's called, took extensive notes at the Council of Nicaea. It is available for reading online. Show me one word about the canon mentioned in that whole conversation. It it, it wasn't dealt with uh, at the Council of Nicaea. Now, the Council of Chalcedon that happened long after that uh, did deal with the idea of uh, recognizing what we would call the canon of Scripture. The word canon comes from a Greek word kanon, which literally means a measuring stick. And uh, in other words, they wanted to determine which books uh, were out there were uh, those that passed the measuring stick test of being the authentic Word of God and which ones did not. Uh, And uh, really, in a sense, uh, there was very little debate uh, about uh, this issue. Uh, By this time, uh, even the Council of Chalcedon was one that really just had recognized what the Church had accepted uh, down through time. Uh, J.I. Packer, the famous theologian, once said that uh, the Church no more gave us the completed canon of Scripture, the New Testament, any more than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the law of gravity. All they did was recognize what God had already done. So despite modern myths and uh, fanciful uh, movies with Tom Hanks in them, No, uh, the Council of Nicaea did not decide which books were in the Bible. Uh, Constantine certainly didn't decide which books were in the Bible. Constantine wanted to stay out of as many of these controversies 
as he possibly could. Uh, he tended to favor, say, some bishops over others uh, in terms of uh, the uh, wranglings that were going on, but it was strictly for political reasons, not for spiritual reasons. Some people ask the question, uh, was Constantine a Christian? Doubtful. I think he, he was baptized it. as an Arian before his death, so he was a heretical Christian, if those accounts are to be trusted. Yeah, he saw Christianity more or less as a uh, way to unify his empire, but great question there, Isaiah. All right, a uh, few questions from Yari. I can knock these out uh, point at a time. Uh, he wants to know, if someone takes the mark, can they still be saved? He heard from somebody who won't be mentioned uh, that if they take the mark, they can still be saved. Uh, the argument is only someone who rejects Christ will be lost forever, and he thought taking the mark and the rejection of the Christ the same thing. He says you can take the mark, then change your mind. He also wants to know what the worship of the beast is in Greek, and is the Antichrist going to have a song and people worship his image similar to Nebuchadnezzar? Uh, let's take this from the top. Can someone who takes the mark be saved? I don't care what YouTube says. Let's go to Revelation 14 and verse 9. Yep. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name." I think that's fairly straightforward. Uh, the worship of the beast in Greek, uh, the word is proskuneo, which means the same thing that it always means in any context. Worship means to bow down or to recognize who someone is. Yeah. If you recognize the Antichrist claim to be God and that in the name of this image, which we read in Revelation 13, affirming that statement, you are proactively not only ignoring the warning of these angels, which will be flying around the world, making sure everyone knows if if you do this, this will happen to you, but it is a fundamental renunciation of what Jesus claimed about himself, to be the God the Antichrist will claim himself to be. The third is in regard to the Antichrist having the song. No, we aren't told anything about that, but you are noting an interesting parallel in Nebuchadnezzar calling people to worship his image. Um, that, of course, wasn't necessarily what the Antichrist is going to right. do, but yeah. it does involve an image, and that, I think, is a fair foreshadowing. The reason why Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3 made a golden image of the, most people believe, the pagan god Nebo, but take of that for what you will. We aren't told if it was of himself or if he thought they were one and the same. All that we're told in the text is that he made the statue entirely of gold. Why is that significant? Because in Daniel chapter 2, which for those doing math at home, it was immediately before Daniel chapter 3, Daniel was there to uh, answer Nebuchadnezzar's challenge. He had a dream, which he rightly understood to be a vision from the gods, and he wanted to know its significance. Daniel, as the messenger of the true and living God, told him his dream, even though he had told it to nobody, and also its significance. He says that this statue which you saw had a head of gold, chest of silver, stomach of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron mixed with clay. These are the empires that will succeed your own, ultimately to be taken over by the kingdom of God, which will last forever. Nebuchadnezzar 
Nebuchadnezzar, to his credit, recognized this and their God as legitimate. But then in the next chapter, what do we see? Nebuchadnezzar's pride spoke for itself. He says, no, my kingdom's not going to pass away. The golden head isn't going to be succeeded by a chest of silver. It's going to be all gold. The whole kingdom is going to be my head of gold. And so, in defiance of this vision of the future, he demanded everyone recognize that, that his vision was to be absolute authority for all times and for all peoples. That's why the traditional um, greeting of kings in the ancient world, Nebuchadnezzar in particular, was, O king, live forever, because that was everyone's ambition. But uh, the point being made is that, Yari, as far as the parallels to the Antichrist, them being required under pain of death to worship his image is about as far as the parallels go. There are other parallels to the Antichrist in the book of Daniel, including predictions about him, like Antiochus Epiphanes in Daniel chapters 10 through 11. But um, as far as uh, songs, we aren't told if he's going to have a metal band playing along with him. You can take that for what you will. We both will be in heaven when it happens. So praise God for that. Yeah. uh, Interesting question, uh, again, from our our church website, Calvary Christian Fellowship, about the Passion uh, Translation of the Bible. Uh, You know, I would say the Passion Translation of the Bible fails right out the get-go because by its own admission, uh, it is not a translation of the Bible. Uh, It is done by a a man who was a uh, missionary and uh, Bible translator in some parts of the world named Brian uh, Simmons. Uh, He has done great work in terms of missions are concerned, but uh, the problem with the Passion Translation uh, is this. Uh, It uses the word translation, and in its uh, opening uh, frequently asked questions section, it says this about the process that was used to produce uh, the Passion Translation. It said, the meaning of a passage took priority over the form of the original words. Sometimes in order to communicate the correct intended meaning, words needed to be changed. The Passion Translation is more in favor of prioritizing God's original message over the word's literal meaning. Uh, In other words, the Passion Translation is not about finding different words in different languages or presenting uh, original words in a new language. Uh, It uh, basically is about saying we've pretty much made up what the Bible needs to say, and it doesn't really matter what the original had to say. We're going to cause the Bible to align with Uh, our own uh, preconceived notions about this. Uh, Simmons is involved with uh, another movement called the New Apostolic uh, Reformation, uh, which uh, basically assigns uh, the role of apostles and prophets to the governance of the church. These apostles are supposed to receive new revelations from God, uh, and uh, because of that, very, very dangerous, something I'd definitely stay away from. All right, and then to finish off the broadcast, uh, Sue, you're trying to get us in trouble. Uh, I'm going to answer your question, but I'd like everyone here to know that our first and remaining strike on our YouTube page is for answering this very question. Um, We uh, challenged it, and we were cited for medical misinformation. This is YouTube's official policy on the answer to this question, of which is, is the COVID-19 vaccine the mark of the beast? No. No, it is not. So, uh... Yeah, we're going to get kicked off YouTube for medical misinformation, apparently, because yeah. their position apparently is that it is. But you can take that for what you will. The Bible's very clear. It's, it's an act a of wacky worship. world we live in. So, God bless you. We'll see you all again next time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. 
thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.